Welcome to my study on understanding the book of Acts. These messages were given live during my regular Sunday morning services. Now, while each of these messages are able to help you as a standalone message, I recommend listening from the beginning because they do build on one another. Now, I pray these help you in your journey of understanding God's word. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Let's get to the message. As I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to be going on sabbatical this summer. <laughs> I'm going to try. We're going to see how this works out. Every time I announce that something crazy happens. So I'm waiting for the second pandemic of the last couple of years to show up sometime in early July. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy. Some of you are going, shut your mouth. Um, so I'm going to be going on sabbatical starting July 5th. And... Uh, I'll be back in the pulpit again August 8th, so I'll be gone for roughly four weeks. Um, once I get back, we're going to be starting a series on something that I think is actually one of the most destructive and pervasive moves in the church today, something that I think we need to be aware of so that we can recognize it and learn how to refute it, and that's called progressive Christianity. You've heard me mention this several times, um, and we're going to be starting a series in that. Now, with that being said, that gives me about four weeks, including this week, to finish up the book of Acts. We're in, we're in chapter 18. 10 chapters left to go, I ain't going to make it. Not doing a big, a really thorough job, unless you want to be here for a really long time. Um, now, and I can talk. I, I'm, I'm a career pastor. Speaking is not an issue. Shutting up is the problem. So I'm going to do my best to, uh, over the next few weeks, try to cover some larger general topics within the panels of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts, if you're not familiar, it can actually be broken down into about six major theme panels. Um, and we've been covering those independently, and we're kind of in the last two. So what I want to try to do is, is cover some, some broader themes within that, uh, because I won't have time to get into the details of the sections. The good part is we're in a good section of the book to actually be able to do that. Um, now, last week, one of the things that we covered was a central core concept of biblical authority. Biblical authority. You wouldn't think that would need to be something that has to be um, uh, pointed to within the church, but it really does because there's a move within the church, as we looked at last week, away from biblical authority and into what I'm just going to call the voice from within type of faith, uh, which is unfortunate. When people value the voice within instead of the word on the page. One of the things I've learned over the years is if I have, if I really believe that the Spirit of God is speaking to me, the voice from within, and it doesn't match the word on the page, one of the things that I've, I've, I've learned is that if I just follow the word on the page, I'm never going to be wrong. I'm wrong when I try to follow the voice from within, right? Because we have great conversations. Some of you are not going to get that, but that's totally fine. Um, meaning there's more than one. Uh, we have a lot of fun talking about different things. And if I'm going to try to override the word of God, pulling out the Holy Spirit card is not something that's worth, it has no value. God's not going to change his mind on his truth just because I think it should be that way. So this idea of coming back to the to biblical authority is so central to what we do here as Christians what I want to do today is I'm going to springboard off of that message. We're talking about biblical authority. That's what we talked about last week. And we're springboarding onto another core central concept within the, uh, within the Christian faith that you would think we would know, but honestly, a lot of times we don't. Now, as Christians, as we develop a deeper understanding of the scriptures, one of the things that should be, should begin to become more and more, more clear to us 
is that scripture itself places a tremendous amount of work in our laps. You notice as you read the you read the Bible and you find out what our goal is and what our purpose is as Christians, God places an unbelievable amount of work in our laps. Jesus goes back to heaven. He says, by the way, take my word and spread it to the entire world. See you in a few years. Take my world, my word to the entire world. Seriously? Like that's the last thing he says. Oh, before I go, <laughs> dad's got a message for you. It's, it's crazy to think about this, but the workload that's been given to us is tremendous. And the, the core concept that we need to get into our mind is that the work is never done. Okay. We know that God has placed a lot of work in our last, but the core concept that we need to get into our hearts is that the work itself is never done. You're never finished. It's never, you know, whoa, boy. God gave me a list of things to do. I got them done. I can relax for the rest of my life. That never, ever, ever happens. There is no done in the life of a Christian. No matter how much we can accomplish, there is always more to do. You think about this. You pray for a sick person. There's another sick person that needs to be prayed for. You tell the gospel to someone. There's someone else who hasn't heard the gospel. You feed a hungry person. There's somebody else that's hungry. You um, uh, you lead an angry person to forgiveness. There's always someone else who's angry. There is always something else that needs to be done. There's actually so much work. It can be so overwhelming that it actually leads people to just stop. You ever been so busy? The only thing you can think to do is take a nap. I have so much to do, I'm going to lay down. <laughs> it can be overwhelming. And it has caused more than one Christian to completely just give up. Because who can, who can actually make this? Who can actually make this happen? No one. No one. It's not something that we individually can complete. But it is something that we as a corporate body must do. It's nothing that we will ever complete, but it is something that we need to do. Now, if we know this, if we know this inside, every day we should be in this process of cultivating opportunities to be a light to the people who are around us. And by cultivating, I'm talking about taking something that doesn't want to grow anything and turning it into something that will grow. Cultivating is more than just sticking a seed in the ground. It's preparing the earth. It's preparing your, it's preparing yourself and the equipment you're going to need in order to, to, to put this thing in the ground. There is a lot to the point of growing something. It's not just dirt, water, and sunlight. There's a lot more to it. So we should be cultivating these opportunities to be a light to people. We should be approaching this duty with the knowledge that the work of the gospel is never done, even as we get older. Have you ever heard this coming from someone who's more experienced in the faith? I've done my time. I've done my time. It usually sounds like this. Hey, the kids ministry needs help. I've done my time. <laughs> Wait a second. Is ministering the gospel to the next generation something we're equating to prison? <laughs> I've completed my sentence. 
I've served society. I've given my debt to society. No, 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 no. It doesn't end because there's always new kids. There's one thing that I figured out in this church is there's always a new baby somewhere. Somewhere. People say it comes in waves. Really? There's been nothing but waves for years. It's just big waves and little waves. We just finished a little wave. Still a little bit of wave left, right? Still babies everywhere. When we moved from door and road to here, there was like two babies. It lasted like a month. Then all of a sudden, Christy's like, help! <laughs> I'm drowning in infants! And one of the things that I would hear from people was, I've done my time. I, I got to ask a question at that point. You dead? Because you ain't dead. You, you're not done. Because there's always something else that needs to be done. And if you're capable, then we should be willing. You think about this. The task is the same no matter how old you are, or how young you are, or how long you've been in the, been in the faith. It's to bring the message to anyone and everyone that's willing to listen. And we do this through word and deed. We do this in our jobs through our moral presence. And yes, at your, in your careers, you should have a moral presence. There should be a distinctive difference between you and the way you relate to people at work and then the people who don't know the Lord and how they relate to people at work. Usually it involves language and types of jokes. Okay? We should have a, it should be noticeable that we're Separate, that we're in that world, but not of that world, right? It should be noted. People should be like, what's with you? Some about you. For some people, it's even annoying. You know, why are you so nice? Because Jesus did something different, different in your life. He changed you. You're not the type of person that you would find every day in the world. We do this in our family and marriage. You know that your family and your marriage should not look the same as a as an ungodly family and marriage. There should be something different about us. It's important that we know that. Our whole life is a tool to be used for the gospel message. Everything we do, everywhere we go, every word we say, every person we interact with. I've been... I have guest spoke at churches. <laughs> I'm going to say this carefully. Where people who did not know who I was, I spent a lot of time working in the restaurant industry, would come into one of those restaurants. And they didn't know who I was. They didn't know who I was until I showed up at their church. And I know how they interacted with my staff. I know the language they used. I know how many cocktails they ordered. I know how they left. Or whoever who carried them out and poured them in their car. And I get there and I'll say, you know, and stand up and, you know, and here, you know, thanks for Pastor George coming to, coming to minister us today. And I'll stand up and you'll see this. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yep. We should never be in that position. We should never be in the position where we think, oh my gosh, they saw me when I. Because we should be Christians 
every day, not just Sunday, from 10 to noon, right? Because it's easy, isn't it? Being a consistent Christian is so simple. There's no, there's, no, there's no work involved in that, right? You know, it's not like trying to bring the gospel message to a world filled with people is difficult. Because people don't make anything difficult. People are all warm, open-minded, and friendly. Right? Now, I've hardly met anyone who's moody, ungrateful, arrogant, stubborn, that lies, that's easily offended and slow to forgive, immoral. Should I go on? Or how many of you are going, is he talking about me? Who talked to him? Now, this silly but true statement has caused more than one person to walk away from the ministry. The fact of the matter is people make things difficult. People make things very difficult because we're people and we have our own way of doing things. And I know a lot of people who don't get involved with the ministry of the gospel, not because they don't believe or value the gospel, is because they don't want to have to deal with people. It's the minister's job to bring the gospel to the lost. It's my job to help support the minister, right? Not according to the Bible. It's the minister's job to devote themselves to study and the understanding of knowledge and its application and then bring that knowledge and application to the body to train the body for the work of the ministry. I read that somewhere. It's this book we call the Bible. That's the role of the minister, to train you to bring the gospel to the world because I'm one person. Now check this out. This is from 2019. This is an article called Why Pastors Leave the Ministry. This is this is not why I'm going on sabbatical, so please don't. I found this this morning. Don't be like, oh, he's gone. No, don't go there. But these are some real statistics that have been gathered. 1,500 clergy leave the pastoral ministry every month. Almost all of them on Monday mornings. <laughs> they come in Monday. I'm done. Nope, we ain't doing this anymore. How about this one? 61% of, con- of surveyed congregations in the United States admit to having forced a pastor out at some point in their history. 61%. 83% of clergy spouses would rather their, 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 their husband or, or wife was not involved in full-time ministry. 83% of surveyed clergy spouses. 90% of the clergy in all denominations will not stay long enough to retire. That's from the U.S. Department of Labor. 90. That means 1 in 10 ministers will retire a minister. Walter, good job. Walter retired from ministry like nine times. (laughs) Way to fly under the radar, bud. That's just awesome. Fifty percent of surveyed pastors say that they'd leave the ministry if they could. They feel stuck. And what that means is in a lot of larger denominations, you have people who have gone to seminary and they have hundred or so thousand dollars in student loans. 
The denomination is paying for that, but they have to stay for a period of time. They're stuck. Now think about this. 50% of surveyed pastors don't want to be there anymore. Thirty-three percent believe that being in ministry is a fam- is a hazard to their family. Ninety <laughs> percent feel they were inadequately inadequately trained for the pastoral ministry. For seminary students, what it sounds like is this: I was taught to teach the Bible. I was not taught how to deal with people. That's the way it works. I was not taught how to deal with people. They thought they were just going to go teach the Bible, do a funeral and a wedding every now and then, and everything was going to be fine. They didn't realize they were going to have someone screaming in their face on Monday or Tuesday morning because so-and-so moved the painting given by so-and-so to the church 857 years ago because the square on the wall that's discolored because the painting has been there so long because no one dared move it got moved, and it got moved four square inches to the left. See, Walter's laughing because he has had these conversations. I was in one of the churches. Walter was one of my pastoral mentors early on in in ministry. I'm very grateful for him. But one of the funniest things he ever talked to me about was a pulpit that he stood at with the little plaque. Do you remember this? Dedicated to Charlie Brown. Not the cartoon character, someone named Charlie Brown. And I'm imagining someone in front of the pulpit going, wah, 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 wah. Wah, wah, wah. But one of the things you know is that that pulpit will be there forever because no, because it's got a plaque with someone's name on it. No one will ever move it. 4,000 churches closed in 2019. 1,700 pastors left the ministry every month in 2019. In 2019, an average of 1,300 pastors were terminated by their local church. That's not 17 and then 13 of the 17. That's 1,700 who voluntarily left every month and 1,300 who were fired every month. These are real stats. No one's making this up. Every month in 2019. And 4,000 churches closed. The stress of ministry is real. And the stress of bringing the gospel is real. And we have to understand that and we have to, we have to take ownership of that. It's not something that's going to happen by accident. It's something that we allow to happen if we're not paying attention. And there is no New Testament figure that had more of a reason to go home to pack it up and call it quits than Paul. Paul had it rough, man. He died once. They took him out of the city and stoned him to death. They, they, they prayed for him. He was risen. He went back into the city. Now, personally, I think that was just brain damage from being hit by too many rocks. This guy wouldn't give up. Now, in the last part of Paul's ministry, chapters 20 through 28, Paul's ministry is drawn to an end. Most of the people that he had been working with had been with him for a while, and he started writing a lot of his closing books. He was leaving us an amazing amount of information. And the churches that Paul had planted had begun to not only thrive, they had begun to actually send people out into the ministry field. Because that's the role of the church. First we gather, then we train, then we send. That's the purpose. It's not, just, it's not about us. It's about gathering our resources and our understanding and then sending people out to use that understanding. But here's the reality. Not everyone can, fit, can commit themselves to a life of study. 
Not everyone is called to preach and teach. As we learn in James 3, it's not good for it for everyone to be teachers because those who are teachers are judged more harshly. So the question that we have to, re- to, to wrestle with is in, in the context of ministry, into reaching out to these people who are amazing. They need Jesus, even us. As we're reaching out to them, do you know what your part is? Do you know what your part is? Because remember, the core concept that we're talking about is that the work never ends. But that doesn't mean that everybody has the same job. As a community, as an organization, as, as a group of people who are following Christ, we have roles within that organization. We have defined places where we, where we work, where we live, where, where we serve. Those places may change throughout your life, but the reality is, do you know what your role is right now? Most of us don't. Most of us are searching for it. Now, people are those cranky things that we're supposed to reach, and they have a tendency of making things difficult. But they're still the focus and the purpose of what we're doing. Paul gives us the example of what it is we're supposed to be doing within the context of ministry. Now, even if you have a good, clear, very concise argument that explains the truth of the gospel, you're going to run into people who want nothing to do with you. They want nothing to do with your message. They want nothing to do with your morality. They don't want anything to do with that God stuff. And they actually might even think that you're an idiot for even believing it. But that's okay. We're not told that everyone's just going to thank us for bringing the message. Boy, am I glad you brought this to me. I had no idea. I'm a new person today. That happens every now and then, but most of the time it doesn't. I was ministering to a young man at a, at a, with a youth ministry. His name was Ted Swan. Some of you know him. And he wanted to be a guitar player for the youth ministry. So his guitar teacher, Tim Grant, who was one of my, uh, another one of my pastoral mentors, said, hey, you should go minister to him. I said, okay, fine. So we sat down in the upper room of this old Baptist church in Clayton, New York. And we're sitting down. I said, look, Ted, you know, we're going through, we're talking about the gospel. And he's like, yep, that sounds great. I said, Ted, you can't be part of this team and not be a Christian. He goes, great. How do I become a Christian? Now I have to admit, I stopped for a second because my brain was not used to going there. So we laid out the gospel message for him. He says, great, I'll do it. And again, I, 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 had, I had to check my spirit because people don't do this. This is what you need to become a Christian. Great, got it. What's next? And he was serious. He wasn't just going through the steps. I talked to Tim later on. Tim says, I don't know what you did, but something changed in him because he was having a, we were having a guitar lesson and uh, he said he's, he just feels different. He even likes his sisters. And I knew at that point, Jesus had gotten a hold of him. (laughs) But this is the stuff that we're called to do. Now, when we looked at Paul last, he was in Athens and he was starting in the synagogue. Remember the people who knew? The people who should have known the language and the the understanding and the history? So he was reaching out to them. He caused a stir in the city. city. He got the attention of some important people, brought some people to the Lord, established a church in Athens. But then he went off to Corinth. And if you're not familiar with Corinth, Corinth was essentially the Las Vegas of its day. It was a cesspool. It was an absolute immoral cesspool. People came from all over the world to get to Corinth 
to indulge in carnal pleasures. And I'll just leave it to your imagination because you could buy anything you wanted at any time and they did. There are stories in history, in history annals um, about the way things were structured in Corinth in order to promote their immorality. They are hard to read because of how graphic they are. And Corinth was proud of it. They were proud of it. So Paul decided it's time to put a church there. Awesome. <laughs> That's just awesome. So in Acts, 4, Acts 18, verses 4 and 8, it reads like this. It says, And he reasoned in the synagogue uh, every Sabbath and persuaded both the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him, listen to this, and blasphemed. We're not talking about gentle of opposition. They opposed him and blasphemed. He shook off his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your head, your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will just go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was right next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, who believed on the Lord with all of his household and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. He was making headway. People were coming to the Lord. But he was so frustrated, please listen, with the Jews who knew better. He was so frustrated with God's people that he said, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I'm just going to go to the to the Gentiles. I'm sick of you Christians, is essentially what he's saying. That's not a small argument. He basically, he was done. He was one of the 1,700 that going to leave the ministry. He went to bed and God spoke to him. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Listen to this. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent. Man, if the church could, could understand this today. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you or hurt you, for I have many people in this city. The city that Paul wanted to give up on, that God said, stay and keep going. He went from being earthly, uh, offended in an earthly way to being heavenly minded. He remained in that immoral cesspool for 18 months building the church. 18 months he stayed there building God's house. A place that he had just given up on. I've had enough of you and God says, stay. And he stayed for a year and a half. Under the type of persecution that would be referred to as blasphemous. You think he was resolved? I think he was resolved. Paul knew what his role was. From there he went to Ephesus. Starting in the synagogue again and then in the marketplace he taught the scriptures. From there he went to Caesarea, back to his home church in Antioch and then back to Ephesus. When he got back to Ephesus, he was able to find 12 believers. Now, that's not a comparison to the 12 disciples. They're just trying to say the church was small. Okay? He could find 12 believers. 
He was there. And when he was there initially, they said, please stay. We're so enamored with what you're saying. We want more. The church had exploded. By the time he got back, there were 12 left. 12. Paul spent the next three months in the synagogue ministering to God's people. The the ones that he said, I'm done with you. I'm just going to the Jews. He went back to God's people to minister the word. After three months, they booted him out of the sanctuary. They booted him out of the synagogue. Don't come back. So he moved it to a place called the School of Tyrannus, which is just a building with a name on it. It's no big deal. But for two more years, he stayed in Ephesus to build that church. For two more years, he stayed in a place that hated him. Surrounded by God's people who wanted nothing to do with God's truth. Who wanted nothing to do with God's word. Starting to see a parallel? They wanted faith according to their views. They wanted Christianity according to their understanding. They wanted a God of their own making. Paul stayed there for two years. Building and establishing that church. In a city that did not like him very much. And then God calls him away. From the very start of Paul's ministry, he understood the price that he would pay. He understood the price he paid because he was the person who used to lead the groups that would bring people into persecution. He was the head persecutor. He knew the price he would pay because he used to make people pay that price. He had no doubts in his mind what his role was. And if you remember... All the way back, excuse me, in Acts 9, when God called Paul and he spoke this, these words to Ananias, then Ananias said, Lord, I have, I, I, I'm sorry, I forgot to put this in the, in the slides. He said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said this, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. God knew from the very beginning all the things That would happen when we walk out our faith, when we stand firm on the promises and on the word of God. When we stand on the promises and the word of God, we're going to see amazing blessings, unbelievable blessings. We're going to see unbelievable miracles. But when you stand on the word of God, when you, when Christian, when you stand up and you believe that when God is telling Paul, do not be afraid, but speak, that that is also for us. We're going to see these amazing things. But we're also going to deal with the same types of persecution and hardships and difficulties that you see throughout scripture. People are not going to like you because as we've said before, Christianity is not a tolerant faith. God tells us that there is one way, not many ways. There is one way. Here's the tolerance of Christianity. All are welcome. All are welcome. No one has sinned so much that they are not welcome. But God is going to take you 
and he's going to change you and he's going to change you into the image of himself. God's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for messed up people who know they need help. That's what the family of God is for. That's what the teachings of Jesus lead us into. We're going to experience these things when we stand on the truth. Just look at today. Stand up for the Bible publicly. For a lot of us, our comments on Facebook have severely diminished because you want to stay employed. Right? We don't quite talk as much at work about our faith because someone identifies as a toaster. I worded that specifically to avoid algorithms just so that you understand that. But today, if you want to be a bagel and tomorrow you want to be toast, that's up to you. But at the end of the day, we're judged by the word of God, not by our feelings and our emotions. Feelings and our emotions are surprisingly useless. But here's the thing. Let's go back to our core concept. God has laid an unbelievable amount of work in our lap. And that work will never be done. You will never be finished. So don't try to be finished. Don't try to finish the race. Because there's no end while we're on this side of eternity. You may be running one day. You may be walking the other day. You may be crawling another day. Someone might be pulling you along, kicking and screaming another day. But the idea is to continually move forward, to not stop the race. I'm going to share three portions of scripture for you, and then I'm going to pray for you. We're going to be done, and then we're going to buy a bunch of sugary stuff for unbelievable amounts of money. Listen to these encouragements. Remember when I, I, I told you this in the beginning when we started the book of Acts? In order to understand the book of Acts, you have to read the rest of the New Testament. You have to understand the rest of the New Testament, or Acts is not going to make a lot of sense to you. So check this out. Philippians 3, 12 through 16 says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which for Christ. This is Paul. That for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended or to have finished, but one thing I do, forgetting those which are behind me and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in God, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything, you think yourself otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Let us remember, we have not finished. We're still on the path. Let us just keep going forward in whatever way we can. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, we also, uh, we also since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I don't know how many of you remember that old song, Witness Cloud. I think the title was We Are Surrounded. It was not a complicated song. It's like, we are surrounded, we are surrounded by a witness cloud. Tremendous piece of music. I had that playing in my mind every time I read this, but that didn't make any difference and I just sidebarred. So let's get back to the text. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despise, uh, excuse me, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For we consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Let us run the race set before us because if Jesus can endure what he did for me, not even knowing if I'm going to accept him, the least I can do is keep moving forward in his service as long as I'm drawing breath. I may not do well, but I'm going to do something. And the last one is this. Romans 10, 13 through 17. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I'd just like to point out that says, faith comes by hearing the word of God, not the voice within. We're back to biblical authority. We're encouraged to do the work that is set before us, to not give up, to never stop, to to do our best to not slow down. You can't sprint through life every day. But you can be conscious of of the fact that you're on the path moving forward. And that God has something amazing for you if we would just stay engaged, if we would just stay focused, if we would commit ourselves to the path, to be resolved in the work that God has set before us. And if you don't know what the work is that God has set before you, then attach yourself to whatever your church needs. Find a need and fill it. And in the process of doing that, God will bring you to the thing he has for you. But if you're just sitting on your butt with your hands, uh, palms turned up, waiting for God to drop some sort of calling in your lap, you're dreaming. God uses the active. But he'll let you sit there as long as you want. You might still be a Christian. You might still go to heaven. But at some point in time, you're going to be made aware of all of the missed opportunities you had while you were waiting for something amazing to happen. Get involved. There's too much work. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Read that somewhere. Get connected. Because there's something for you to do. Amen. Father, we thank you for the fact that you want to use each and every one of us. You have not called a select few. You have not chosen a select few to be your mouthpiece. Your word tells us that we are all a kingdom of priests. We are all representatives and ministers of your word, whether we know it or like it or not. Father, help us to recognize the opportunities that we have throughout our day, in our life, in our jobs, in our vocation and our vacation. Help us to understand the opportunities that we have to be the light that people around us need. And help us to do this smartly. Help us to do this with thought, not recklessly. Help us to represent you well, but also to represent you with resolve. Just as 
Paul, just as the example that Paul gives us to not give up when things get hard, but to take that moment and to press in as we grow in our trust of you.